0: Thank you for listening. This is the Legends Podcast by All Day Vinyl. I'm your host Scott Duddleston. After you finish this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and check us out on Instagram and YouTube at All Day Vinyl. Today, I'm excited to speak with a true legend, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Songwriters Hall of Fame, Musicians Hall of Fame, Grammy Hall of Fame, and my favorite, the Hammond B3 Hall of Fame, the Hammond <laughs> Hall of Fame. He wrote some of the most iconic songs in the 1960s: "Groovin," "How Can I Be Sure," "People Got to Be Free." amazing beautiful morning and so many more i'm here with the great felix cavallari of the rascals thank you thank you felix thank you for joining my pleasure good to see you good to see you too man so let's start you have a new album called then and now so let's start with the now and then we'll take it back to To the the then then. yeah so new album came out late last year five original songs five covers old soul songs that were you know, influential or, or favorites of yours. Uh, there's Clarence, Car- uh, Clarence Carter, Slip Away, Andy King, Spanish Harlem, some really great ones. Now, what, what is the, the theme behind the five that you chose? Cause it's a well of an infinite amount of great old soul R and B. Why, why these five?
1: Well, that's a good question because, like I say, you know, we came up with this idea to do, uh, five old songs that influenced you and then five new songs that you write. Very, very difficult finding five old songs out of, out of 5,000 that influenced you, you know? Yeah. So it, it really was difficult making a choice because, like I say, you know, I grew up near New York City when Alan Freed brought rock and roll from Cleveland to New York. So I, I was actually present at the beginning of what we know, you know, today is pop music, rock and roll. I heard all these phenomenal artists. You know, and, you know, in case people don't know it, I mean, there was no auto tune in those days. You know, you, you basically either sang correctly or you, you didn't, you didn't record. So that the talent was just amazing. So to pick five songs was very difficult, but that's, that's pretty much what my, my co-producer and I, Mike Sievers, who's also my guitarist, we, we came up with five.
0: And uh, were these singles that you had known as as a kid or as a younger man?
1: Yeah. You know, these these were songs that, you know, like, really, like, you know, I, I think you could probably, for the most part, like, you could just point to the artists. You know, like Benny King, tremendous influence on me because of the fact that his voice was just unbelievable, you know? And he he was also one of the nicest men I ever met in my life, you know? My only regret... Said I never got a chance to do a duet or something with him. He was really, really special. So pick a song. Okay, Spanish horn, but there's so many Benny King. And then Ray Charles. I mean, as a piano player, when I heard Ray Charles, it it changed everything because I was playing classical music and I heard this gospel R&B pianist and I never had heard anything like that. And, And that has influenced my whole my whole life, you know? So to find a Ray Charles song is also not that easy because yeah. there's so many. So on and on and on, that's how I did it. And, and then we have a couple of obscure ones in there, like the, uh, the one with Bobby Moore. That's just because, uh, you know, we live down South now, and that was a big hit down South. I don't think it was a big hit up North, but Mike knew it because he's from South Carolina and it's a cool song. You know, the interesting thing about that is that, uh, what do you call Percy from the, from the Led Zeppelin, man, he just, Robert Plant just did an album with Alison Krauss and he yeah. did that same song.
0: So, Amazing. Yeah. You didn't, you, there was no, uh, you didn't know that.
1: No, I had no idea, but he did it. He did it kind of like a, a newer type yeah. of style. I kind of copied, emulated what they did. Searching for love is that is it, it's really a cool song. I love it.
0: And this, this goes back a lot to, you know, good loving and, Finding the the really cool singles, picking out the really great soul songs that you could interpret.
1: Exactly, yeah. Because in the the old days, that's what was demanded of you to work in clubs. No originals. They they didn't want originals for many many years because, you know, their their whole thing was to bring people there, make them dance, make them drink, and the way to do that was to do you know covers or what we call top forty in those days, you know, and. So they demanded that you do covers. So I we had to find uh, you know songs that were on the radio, and I had to go and buy the forty fives to prove. Like for example, uh, Good Lovin' and Mustang Sally. Uh, look, these are records, man. You know we didn't write these. You know I wish I did.
0: <laughs> the, the first time you heard uh, Good Lovin' was that on on the radio via Alan yeah. Reed? or yeah.
1: No, it was WWMR, I believe, in New York City. It was it was an R and B station. You know that was a group that i also like to call the olympics yeah. but i come to find out that that had been around a while before them as well you know and but when we took it you know we took it and we put it into our live set from the first time we played it people just jumped out of their seats and danced so you know you, you just never know do you know that was a
0: song when you first heard it that you could interpret and you could really do something with
1: yeah, and so did Atlantic. Well, when we were doing that live when they found us out in Long Island at the barge, that's one of the songs that they, you know, they wanted us to release as a single. And they were absolutely right, because it was a number one record instantly, you know? So good luck.
0: Good loving, good luck. And you worked on that in the studio with Reef Martin and Tom Dowd, is that right? Correct, yeah. Which was what, magic. Uh- Right. I actually have so many questions about this, but uh, give me give me like uh, a little piece, right. a slice of the moment of what it was like being in the studio, or early days with these two, you know, soon to be legends, and you, soon to be legend. How, what is this? What is that experience like? Well,
1: you know, uh, I had a little experience in a recording studio, but not much. You know, so it, it's a whole new environment. So to walk into Atlantic Records Studio was kind of like you know if, you're, if you come from new york it would be the yankee dugout <laughs> you know yeah. it was like oh my god do you know who's been in this room right here i mean seriously we're talking about John coltrane ray charles the drifters you know all these phenomenal it was like awe-inspiring you know and, and you're in this place where this music was made you know and atlantic they just made they made you feel like you're here to make good music, okay? That's what we're here for. We want to make great music, and you just felt that the moment you walked in. And Arif was it was was not a proven entity by any 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 means. You had, you know, he came from Turkey, and he was like a, what they call a, an A and man. They called him Tommy Dowd. I knew who he was because you know I bought all these records, and his name was on them. Mostly as an engineer, but I had no idea of the extent of this man's talent. So to walk in with these gentlemen and to have to record was very interesting, because one of the things that I did when we were signed is, you know, I really wanted to produce ourselves. I didn't want anybody taking over, you know, And as you say, that's in my book. We had to turn down some really powerful people. Who wanted to to sign us to so get Phil that permission to do? Spectre, it. Right? Oh, Spe- Phil Spector, right? Spector was one, yeah. But yeah. all all the other labels that had made offers to us, they they would not allow us to be in charge, literally in charge. And that's an Atlantic did. So there was a lot of pressure on me. But you see, one of the things I learned from these two giants <laughs> was they make you right at ease. Mm. You know, I mean, immediately you knew these. Guys were there to make good music and let's get to work, you know, and Arif, one of one of the things I really learned from him was how to handle, you know, crazy young artists like us. You know, he was very tactful and that's important. You know, you, you create an environment for them to make music and and that's what happened. That's how we did it.
0: Amazing. And you were the Rascals were the first white band signed to Atlantic Records, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much on the Red and Black label, you know, which was pretty cool. <laughs> that was really cool. And when you were
0: when you were recording, did you have any experiences with some of the the Atlantic artists at that time? With I guess it would be Wilson Pickett. Or,
1: uh... Yeah, I mean, oh sure, because you know Atlantic was not like a real sophisticated type of corporate venture yet. You know they became that way when when they became Warner Brothers. So as a result, there would be people walking in the in the halls that were like giant legends. <laughs> you know, and you see these guys walking by, and it, it was just amazing because you know, like at first, you know, like you know, you're in awe of these people. I mean, yeah. Sam and Dave and Wilson Pickett, and, you know, the, the 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 phenomenal jazz players, Hubert Laws and these guys would be walking right by the studio, you know, mm. and uh, there was no like really restrict restricted areas like in the, in the in the Columbia studio, big signs up recording, do not enter, et cetera, et cetera. So people mingled, you know, and that really, really, really helped because a lot of times I would see some of these guys going by and if there were a jazz soloist, I'd say, hey, you guys want to play a solo on some of our stuff, man, you know? And what a treat that was. I mean, so, you know, it, it, as I say, the, the entire Atlantic world for me was was like a magic kingdom. You know, I, I I really enjoyed it. And I've always been thankful that we've been able to do it.
0: Amazing. And you put out some amazing records with them. And yeah. That,
1: that, fir- that first
0: record was titled and labeled as The Young Rascals, obviously, like yeah. The Rascals. And as a record collector, somebody who's been at tons of record stores, I have yeah. noticed sometimes that it's filed under Young Rascals. I know. Other Rascals. So tell, tell me the story of why it was Young Rascals and then yeah. Datsu what it is.
1: Well, you know, basically, uh, we didn't really have a name, you know. And the way the story goes is uh, a fellow by the name of Soupy Sales gave us the name The Rascals, you know, which is a long story to make it kind of short. You know, we wanted to be discovered. So we went to his television station and he had a hit record. And, and and told him look if you need a backup band well we're here you know and he said i, I all these years I never knew I needed a backup band I said well you got a hit record man you need a backup band he said what's your name we didn't have a name so after a, a, a series of jokes you know he said well the rascals so we we used the rascal well okay well when I I think our record started coming out good just before good love him we're in California going to, going to work at the Whiskey A Go-Go and uh, we get a phone call from our manager. Can't use the name Rascals. Wow, what happened? Oh, well, there's a group called the Harmonica Rascals. They used to be on Milton Berle's show, which is you know, a long time ago. And they're going to be a problem. So I, meaning Sid, changed the name to Young. Well, you know the name of a group is kind of like naming your kid, you know, I mean, basically, you know, like it's kind of personal, you know, and groups take a long time. So I, I didn't like it from the beginning. I don't know if anybody else liked it, but it caused a lot of confusion because there was a television show at that time. And so people would say, Hey, did that dog really have a circle around his eye? That's the little rascals. That was the inference that kind of bugged me, you know. And so yeah. when we had our hit records, I said, you know what, man, let's let's just change it. Not thinking that they would be moving us from bin to bin in the record stores. Not thinking there'll be a little bit of confusion. You know, thinking was, I don't know. You yeah, know you're know, you living in the you're moment. A young of that. Guy. You're a young guy, you know what I mean? Like you're allowed to make some crazy decisions. But anyway, so we became the Reds.
0: I, I want to touch on that. That soupy sales stuff's amazing. And you're young at, you're young at that time. How do you have the balls to just go up to somebody like this and have the confidence that your music and that you could handle this? Where does, where does that come from at that time?
1: Well, I don't know, man. I mean, that's just like one of the things about coming from New York. You know, when you come from New York, you got chutzpah, they call yeah, it. Yeah, Right. So, you know, we, so we got to get discovered. How We also did the same with cousin Brucey, you know, we, we stormed into WABC. You know, we said, we gotta we gotta get discovered. What are we gonna do? Well, let's grab cousin Brucey and bring him down to the club. And then we found out he was about six four. We said, excuse me. <laughs> can we can we talk to you? You know? You know, you're trying to find a way to get discovered, you know, and uh yeah. and, and fortunately, like he, you know, has been a friend for all those years. And, and Supi rested soul, he was always in our corner. The it's thing that so- Soupy liked about it is that we laughed at everything he said. <laughs> so he said, wow, this could work out. Sometimes I go and no one laughs. But if the band laughs, at least I feel a little better. He was great. He was a great, great man. Incredible. Yeah, he was a great guy.
0: And you've you've talked about in the book and in the past, the Beatles influence on you and, and songwriting. And your manager was Sid Bernstein, who's one of the right. first people to bring the Beatles to America and to Shea Stadium. and. I want to ask you because I know you were at the Shea Stadium show, which is oh, yeah. legendary. My father went there fifty. Oh wow! Years, and it's probably one of the highlights of his life. He's probably listening, yo, dad. So tell, yeah. me, tell me, about, tell me about, tell me about that that experience of being being there as a young band and experiencing that Beatlemania and what that does for you.
1: Well, I mean, uh, there's two parts to the story. First part being exactly what you said. You know, it's 50,000 people screaming, you know, they wouldn't stop, you know. I mean, you could barely hear the person right next to you, much less the band who was about to play the helicopter. You heard you. That was about it. You know, I had witnessed them in Europe. I i, I think, you know, from my original uh, a trip over there with Joey D, uh, I, I was able to hear the Beatles before they came to the United States. And the same thing occurred, although that was in a club atmosphere, you know. There was a a nonstop shriek from the audience because it was just unbelievable, you know. And the second part of the story is that our manager put a sign up on the scoreboard. The rascals are coming. The rascals are coming. The rascals are coming. And, you know, we didn't know about it, you know. But we, when we saw, it, we said, like, wow, how cool is this? How cool is this? And of course, you know, being in the dugout, we waved, you know, and Brian Epstein did not like that at all. You know, he was, he was not, not happy about that. And matter of fact, he threatened to cancel the show if that wasn't immediately taken down. So all, all of these different things, you know, contributed to an evening, your, your father will tell you it was kind of really special. You know, it was kind of like, well, I'm here, you know, it's kind of like, super bowl you know yeah but it was over pretty quickly also you know but it, it was a quite an experience
0: did you get an opportunity to meet them during that
1: no 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 they were in and out they, they were on the field and then they were gone you know they they didn't they, i don't think they stayed I, I don't think they went to a dressing room brian did you know their manager but i just remember them chooom, they were gone
0: yeah, yeah. And year, years later, just through your y- yogi practice with Swami, George Harrison became a confidant or somebody who helped you in that path. is that is
1: absolutely that like- yeah well we we got to know them a number of times because of the uh, as I say, first in Europe, with Joey D and then second with with Sid Bernstein having press conferences. and just kind of like you know it was a little bit of a you know a mix up between the three of us, the four of us, five of us, you know and so you got to know them and they were really very good guys i mean they were interesting people you know like i later toured with ringo who's a great great guy you know they they but you know one time you know i i said to george because i really wanted to know about his involvement with the maharishi i was about to get involved with the, a spiritual venture with a with a swami swami Satchidananda. And I, I just wanted to ask him a couple of questions. And during that uh, conversation, you know, I just happened to mention. I said, "Do you have any idea how big you guys are? I mean, you have any idea what kind of a weight? You know, in other words, if you move three inches to the right, you know, the globe kind of shifts a little bit." And you know, George was a very introspective kind of guy. You know, he really was a very intelligent man. And he just looked down. And he said, "Yeah." Otherwise, hey, dude, I gotta carry that around with me every day, you know. And that's true. When I was on the road with Ringo, and as it was '97, you know, we did the Ringo Star All Stars. For him to go to a movie, we had the whole theater. We had a he had to basically have it open privately for him. So we would go in and we'd be the only ones in the theater. That that's a little difficult. I mean, it's it sounds like fun, but I don't know, man. You know, yeah, absolutely interesting. Absolutely.
0: And and around around that time when the Beatles were inspiring you, you started writing your own music with Eddie. And one of the first big hits of that was was Reuven, is that right? Right. Yes. Can you, can you tell me a little about the, the writing sessions of how you and no. Eddie began on that?
1: Basically, you know, because because the Beatles and you know, Bob Dylan, the Kinks, Stones, Love is Bornful, began this new venture writing their own material I, I said well you know, let's do this let's try it you know what I mean so you know i I had been writing all my life you know but it's just that as I say we couldn't use them you know now because we had this number one smash Ola you know good loving we had a little weight so I said well, let's try it you know so I brought the songs in you know and basically i I wanted to create a uh oh uh oh, where are you? There you. Are. I wanted to create a, a Lennon and McCartney situation, so I asked asked Eddie, you know, who I, I felt was really good at the uh, verses. In other words, I would give him the subject, you know, I'd write all the music, and uh, basically I'd write mostly like this is what the song is about, and then he would fill in the the verses, and I just found his words to be a lot more flowery than mine. I was a little bit too serious, I thought. So for a bit for, for a while we had this collaboration which worked. But you know, I wrote most of them myself and brought them in to him. And unfortunately, I, you know, like it, it didn't stay like that because I think, you know, if you don't really enjoy the process, it, it becomes W-O-R-K. And it never was work for me. This was like a pleasure for me to do. I think Eddie kind of got bogged down a little bit, you know. And I uh, later found out that he uh, asked his brother to help him out with lyrics, which we never knew, you know.
0: Right, that's but, a wild uh, story.
1: And, you know, you don't know. And and then in the, in those days, there was a two album a year minimum. I mean, you know, like uh, we did a lot of albums. Beatles did a lot of albums. Later years, as the artists became more and more and more uh, powerful and the gap in between al- albums releases would, you know, it would take maybe two or three years. They wouldn't do an album in two years. But when we did it, it was, you know, you had, you had to do two a year. It's a lot of work. And as I say, if you enjoy that work, great. If you don't, then it becomes difficult, you know. So very interesting, you know, adventures <laughs> to
0: play. Absolutely. And when you when you have a song like Groovin' and you bring it to the band, you bring it to Dino and you bring it to Gene, is it fully formed? Or was it the type of thing where you then flush it fully out before you record it?
1: Well, basically what I, what I did is I uh, established a, a relationship with Arif, Arif Bard, and he, he actually, uh, he took a, he, he took a rental, I believe it was, or in, in, in my old hometown, which was Pelham, New York. I would go over to his home and I'd show him, you know, this is, this is what I did, man. This is what I have, you know, and, you know, he would sit down at the piano with me and say, that's good. I like this one. How about this? Try this, you know. And the try this was like, oh, my God, <laughs> how cool is that? You know, because one of the things about Arif, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was this joy of making music. You know, this was not a job. You know, he didn't have to invite me over to his home to go through the, you know, the, the productions. He loved, you know, and, and you could tell. And, and his enthusiasm is just the same as you, you would have if you're a young person in, in a band. It was exactly the same, you know. And so by the time we got to the studio, we really kind of knew what we were going to do, you know, pretty much. You know, as I say, sometimes when we get to the studio, the lyrics were be complete. So we, we had a little bit of a backlog of, you know, tracks, and we had to catch up with the lyrics. But that was just the way it was. But musically, our band, basically, with the exception of the bass, which happened later because I played the original bass on organ. And Arif said one day, look, you know, like the sound is getting more and more sophisticated. There's a a group around here, King Curtis's band, and there's a bass player around here. uh, His name was Chuck Rainey. And uh, why don't we invite him in? Well, fortunately, we invited him in for grooving. Yeah. And, you know, to fall in love (laughs) in a studio, it was an amazing, just just an amazing relationship from day one, you know. But because he was a phenomenal bass player, you know, and much as I tried with my left hand and my foot, I, I couldn't do what he did. I mean, it, it was impossible. So now we had the fourth so-called member in the studio, but everybody else: Gene, Dino, myself, and Eddie. That's it. We didn't we didn't bring anybody else in except for to solo. You know, like, for example, some of the horn players that were walking in balls. So the sessions were a joyous occasion for the most part, at least to me. I mean, yeah, it was work, but, you know, making music that you just created and hearing it back on these wonderful speakers, you know, you you, you just say like, wow, is this really happening? You know, is this really, really taking place? And then as it blossomed, you know, and we had great voices. I mean, you know, Eddie and, and then later we brought his brother in, who was a great singer, David. Yeah. It was just a magical event. And 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 the secretaries, see the, the Atlantic studios were right adjacent to the offices in those days. It wasn't a big corporate venture. You know, they, they the secretaries would, would come to the door of the studio and they kind of like start dancing and stuff. Like you said, okay, man, we got something here, you know. Wow. Plus what fun! I mean, like I say, it was just a blast.
0: That sounds like an amazing time.
1: It was an amazing experience, you know. As I say, and you know, we we're first so lucky to have been part of that family.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you had you had oh, a run of really really amazing songs that, that you wrote. Beautiful, beautiful morning. How can I be sure? Uh, but I want to talk about one in particular that Bruce Springsteen called the definitive of his generation, and it's a remarkable song. People got to be free.
1: Yeah. Well, that was an interesting song because, you know, as most people probably know, you know, your life experiences come out in your music, you know, and uh, you know, like if you're going through changes, you know, that comes out in your music. More and more, more and more and more that was happening too. But this this was an experience that happened to, you know, in my personal life. I was uh you doing Robert Kennedy's campaign, you know, I was you know, like just looking for a big change that we could perhaps make and it was this young man who espoused a lot of the beliefs that I had in those days. And I was seeing this lady who was a part of the campaign who was actually out there when that horrible assassination happened. And in those days, you know, we didn't have the social media. We didn't have like the internet. we had I had like a shortwave radio, and I was actually on vacation, and I heard this assassination had happened in Los Angeles. I mean, it just hit me, you know, it's kind of like, wow, you know, everything's going to stop here, you know, everything that we've been working on, everything. And so it, it came out in, in, in a song, you know, it came out in a thought came out in a, in a plea of what the hell is going on here, you know, which Marvin Gaye already did (laughs) what's going on. Well, I don't know what was going on, but you know, I wonder if people know where we're at. I wonder if they, maybe they think we're part of this kind of what's going on today. No, let's let's make sure that they know where we're at. This is where we're at. All the world over, it's so easy to see. People everywhere just got to be free. End of story. And it became like an obsession. You know, got to do this. Brought it back to New York. Record company said, what are you doing? Why are you guys rocking the boat? I said, "What boat? <laughs> you know, we're not rocking anything. We're just, we're just telling people how we feel. Ah, it's not a good idea. Don't do it. You know." And I had a fight with them. You know, I had a fight with Jerry, Jerry Wexler. You know, who yeah. was a cantankerous man. And you know, yeah. fortunately, we had, uh, like I said, we had so so on paper creative control. But we're young kids. You know what I'm saying? And these guys were grown men, and it was their label. So we went at odds all the time. Fortunately, a lot of people helped us out. You know, a lot of people on the staff, like some of the uh, some of the other AR people, they 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 say, "Hey man, this is a good record, man." You know, Jerry, you better pay you better pay attention. This is good. Man. that's what happens behind the scenes. It it could have not gone out at all, you know, and instead it became a number one record, not only in the United States but in all the places in the world that at that time were oppressed you know, and that really meant something because, yeah, you know, you're doing something besides just, you know, putting a record out and trying to, you know, attract the flies, you know, (laughs) it's just, you know, there's a reason that we're here on earth, you know, and uh, maybe that was our reason, you know, is to say something, you know, and boy, I tell you the it's still needed, man. I mean, it's just ridiculous. People, they don't understand that, you know, like we're all created equal. That's what it says. You know, when you, see that Statue of Liberty. I mean, I don't get it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you, do you get to tour in any of those areas or overseas or abroad? We uh, did to a degree,
1: but it it was difficult in those days because, you know, as I said earlier, Atlantic was not Warner brothers yet. So the, uh, the, uh, the record companies in a lot, most of the free world, most of the world were different. They weren't, you know, like Columbia was Columbia all over the world. So we had to deal with that, you know, and then when Zeppelin came over to, uh, to, uh, to Atlantic, they became, it became Warner Brothers big difference because now your record goes out to all those countries with the same backing, you know, whereas we had to deal with Barclays and all these different labels. It was very, very diff- difficult, you know, cause you know, it's, it's, it's never been a kind of like an exact business i mean there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that unless you look at a documentary you never know
0: <laughs> right. right all 2020 and yeah so so at at that point that was a that was a big single and yeah. few years later is when the band started to dissolve you've pointed to a reason that in all of the chats i've talked with other artists and in my experiences it's it comes down to ego seems right. to be one of the one of the killers, where, at what point in the journey did, did you start seeing that being, even if it was a nugget of something that you saw it was.
1: Well, certainly right there, you know, right there, you know, which was, uh, you know, uh, basically a lot of people don't realize that sometimes your family's interventions kind of screw up the group, you know? I mean, certainly a lot of people know that wives screw up grooves. I mean, that's, that's been historically noted, you know, but sometimes, you know, like a family can say, well, you know, how come the camera was him on him all the time in the show? Well, maybe he was not singing the lead, that's why. Well, it should be on you, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it gets into your bra, so to speak. So th- that was kind of a turning point is that, you know, and, and again, I don't don't mean to, you know, I purposely left a lot of this stuff out of the book because. You know who cares, man? But the bottom line is that the the workload was was not being split fifty fifty anymore. You know, I mean the the, the historical pre- precedent is you know the lyrics are fifty percent and the music is fifty percent. However, that that line was being crossed over by me quite a bit, so I just felt that it was really unfair for me to give fifty percent, you know, to a person. Who I really felt was not earning the 50%. Whether I was right or wrong, it, it, it didn't sit right with me. You know, because of whatever reason, you know, that people gotta be free caused a little bit of a problem, you know. And it caused a big problem later in life because as I say, you know, Eddie's philosophy was very different from that, you know. See, I live in Nashville now, and basically we do a 50-50 down here. You're right with somebody. It doesn't really matter, you know, if you did half the lyrics or all the lyrics, or, because there was a contribution made, and his 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 thought process was very different. If I write one line, it's fifty percent. And you know, we ended up you know I said, come on, man, that, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Yes, it does to him. So I don't know if you should air this. I mean, like I say, it, it's it's all business. Right. But it just didn't sit right. You know, I said, I I'm doing this and, and, and basically come to the table, you know. So it caused a problem. All right. Well, we got over it. I mean, you know, we went by it and we started going on. But, you know, it just continued until he finally just decided to leave.
0: And you guys obviously reunited for a few shows on Broadway. And I'm really happy to see that. Currently- uh, yeah,
1: but, you know, like reunited. But, you know, it's just a shame, man. I mean, because. You know, give you like brothers, you know, yeah, yeah. and you know, you brothers fight, you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I watched Eddie and his brother David fight all the time, you know, in the studio. But you know, when when it comes down to like legalities and things like that, that's crossing the line. I feel with the fact that you know we 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 did this together, you know, we did this together, you know, and reality has to set in at some point, you know so i I would say it answer your question, and as I say you know i'm I'm sure like if it goes on the airwaves, people are gonna you know use it against me, but the bottom line is that's what happened, you know I mean you know you got you you, you come to come to work, man,
0: yeah, I mean, you lay that out very clearly in your book as well, and
1: do i i mean yeah, I, no, I I kind of skirted the issue you know because just you know first of all, I'm embarrassed by it, to tell you the truth because I mean you know like it's it's kind of like a you know it's so prophetic that you know you start a group and then you you become successful and then you destroy the group. I mean, why?
0: Uh, it's almost cliche at this point.
1: Right? I mean why? I mean, it's so silly. It, okay, it's ego, but in the meantime, a lot of the English groups don't have that ego. you you notice that? I don't like you. I don't like you, but well, let's go out and make millions of dollars. That's right. That's uh, right. yeah, it's a good idea
0: go <laughs> ahead. Really? And it's—I think it's very cool that you still tour with Gene. What—what that experience been like?
1: Well, it's difficult because of uh, you know, like his his health. You know, uh, all that. Right? Uh, it's tough. You, you know, Gene. Gene is a really interesting guy. You know, he—he um, kind of took a lot of wrong turns in his life. You know what I'm saying? Which he wrote about in his book, in a book, and. You know, as, as we get up to later in life, you know, like the, the, the rule of thumb is, I mean, you better take care of yourself because if you don't, it's going to be really hard on you if you have, you know, problems, you know. And so that's what's happening. It's it's tough. But you see the thing with Gene, Gene has that innate desire to be a rock and roll star. I mean, he he from the first day his mom took him to a concert in Rochester, New York. That's what I want to do Marl. That's where I want to be. So I feel that it kind of keeps him alive to have that, you know, come on, man, let's go out there and do it, you know? And, and, and I think without that, you know, I don't know, you know, because, you know, he, he has to, he has to struggle, you know, just to get there sometimes.
0: Well, from mentally, do you feel it's the same way for you? I mean, you seem to love playing. You seem to love writing, but creating is that's,
1: we're it's all like it. that. I mean, yeah. you know, Ringo's still on the road. What the heck? Because he doesn't. He doesn't need the right. He doesn't need any money. You know, he's he just he's a rock and roll ham man. He wants to go out there and play. And you know, a, a lot of the older artists. It's not just the older artists. I mean, most people who play music, they get hooked. You know, it's this fun. is. I like this. Let's do it.
0: What, what is still, what's still inspiring you when you write? I mean, you wrote five new songs on the new album. What is?
1: Well, there's, there's a, I guess there's a creative part of all of us, you know, and, 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 and that to me is the fountain of youth. I mean, I, if I can keep that going, I, I can pretty much stay, you know, relevant, you know, needed, you know, I mean, it's one thing to play, you know, songs that you did 40 years ago. It's another thing to play songs that you just did, and I, I moved to Tennessee for that reason. You know, it's very alive and well down
0: here. Are you writing still writing music regularly with
1: uh, I, not as regular as I was like to because uh, you know, it's, it's a whole different uh, it's a whole different scene now where uh, you know, we used to have one or two guys, where, you know, now you got five or six guys in the studio, you know, in the writing room, and uh, you know. Wait a second. We're we're dividing this five. You know, it's kind of different. You know, and then and then there's all kinds of politics involved. It's kind of difficult to get through the morass of to get this to the artist or the producer. You know, it used to be a lot more free, but you know, people have lawsuits all the time now. Oh, I'm giving that song, and now you're using it, and I don't get credit for it. so, you know, it, 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 the flow of uh, of of songs has kind of slowed down a little bit because of the, you know, Ed Sheeran there. My God, they soon to like a rhythm. Yep. <laughs> you know? totally yeah, I mean, well, okay, I guess there's a lot of rhythms, but that's not a song. The rhythm is not a song. Oh, yes, it is. Is it? Well, let's go to court and find out. I mean, court, 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 court. All right, we're in a litigious society. It's really sad, man. Come on, you know. I'd so, rather you come over and hit me hit me in the face. Right. You know?
0: <laughs> like they <laughs> did in the sixteen hundreds.
1: That hit me in the wallet.
0: You know? <laughs> a couple a couple of questions before we wrap. And and Felix, I really appreciate your time. Oh, well, thank uh, you, man. Your I appreciate it. Great stories. It's tremendous, man. You worked with Laura Nero on a few albums. And in in the in the book, you mention one of the records you worked with the uh, Muscle Shoals. Yeah, a band and you worked with Dwayne Allman and you don't get much into it but the Muscle Shoals uh, band they were on the great Aretha records Dustin Springfield all the great Atlantic stuff Any anything you could share about those experiences in the studio working with Dwayne or working with
1: well, well Dwayne Dwayne was in and out pretty quickly you know like he uh, Skyman man he, he had this problem that I think Atlantic didn't want him to do sessions so he had to change his name yeah, yeah. he came man man he did his thing he was so good you know, like what he, he worked with Clapton on Layla and those things. I, I mean, you know, really talented, talented. See, Atlantic, what, what they did is they, it's another story, but getting back tell, to- Tell, 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 tell oh, yeah. what Atlantic- Well, basically what Atlantic was aware of uh, is that a good rhythm section makes a great record. So they, they, they went around and, 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 in Georgia and, and they tried to get the Memphis guys, you know, the yeah. the proper and those guys, but they, they couldn't quite get them. But the Muscle Shoals guys- they, they had a rhythm section. They had a sound, you know, and, and it was a good sound and they were talented. And so they, 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 they adopted these people, brought them in to do the tracks for their artists, as you mentioned, the staple singers and Areth, you know, I think Roberta Flack. I mean, but, but you see, with, with Laura, La- Laura Nero was, I hate to use the word eccentric, but she was very different, you know. And by that, I mean that, you know, we used to tell her, you know, Laura, some of us would like to make money on this project. You know what I'm saying? You know, maybe you should adhere by some rules. No rules. She had no rules. Whatever she wanted to do, she did. And the Muscle Shoals guys, they were all from down south. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You you want us to stop playing here and slow down? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So it was such a pleasant experience because it was none of that, What the hell is she doing? You know what, I mean? what do you mean? I got to play more green. You know, she was saying, it's a little bit too red. You got to make it a little bit more green. And, you know, I, I think if you translate that into music, there's a reason behind it. But I me, mean, so they were just perfect, Amazing. you know, and, and I miss a lot of those guys. They're not with us anymore. But, you know, they were gentlemen. It was southern gentlemen, and and I think that's that's the one thing that I think should be, uh, besides their talent, known. Amazing, yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing perfect.
0: guys. And one one last question, because yeah. you know, through this chat, you've mentioned so many amazing encounters and experiences that you've had through through your life, and you've mentioned Arif Martin, Tom Dow, and Jerry Wexler, as people who've mentored you or been have been a big part of your life. And I'm curious, are there any when you were younger, are there any artists that you met that became mentors to you and mentors to you throughout your life?
1: Ah, uh, only only through their work, you know. I mean, like I say, like you know, like Benny King and mm. Ray Charles, and you know, I I, I mean, I, I, I Fats Domino, Little Richard, mm. you know. No, I, I basically had to you know kind of pick up my myself because these guys were you know they're pretty busy, you know, but. The the knowledge that I got from just listening to their records, you know, and this is one of the things I try to give, you know. Sometimes people ask, "Well, what can I do to make it in the music business?" I, I would say, like, you know, pick up some some artists that you really admire, learn learn what they're doing, you know. Go out and play it in public or play it privately, but learn what they're doing in terms of like the chops. You know, like, there's a number of things right now, and I think it's on uh, Amazon. There's these uh, documentaries with people who are making music, like with Steely Dan, like Michael O'Marty. Take a look and see what these guys are about. Chuck Rainey just did one for them as well. See what what they did to get where they are, besides study. Yeah, I mean, you you, got to study. I mean, if you go in there you know into this world the more knowledge you bring in in there with you the better it's going to be for you you know but there's nothing like playing experience we get locked up with our computers these days and you know it's me and my box me and my me and my computer my you know but, well that that's that's not how it is man you, you, you bring it out into the into the public and it'll do you a lot of good amazing well Felix, yeah thank you
0: thank you so much congrats on the new record thanks man congrats on the book I appreciate both of them. I appreciate everything you've done for music history. So, thank you, brother.
1: Well, Scott, I appreciate what you're doing because, like I say, this is a way for us to get out into the world here these days. So, Man. thank you for bringing us out into the world.
0: Cheers! Thank you, Felix. Okay. Hey,
1: take soon. care. Bye. So, be safe out there.
0: Thank you. You too. I'll see you soon. All right. See you. Thank you for listening to the Legends Podcast by All Day Vinyl. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, share it, subscribe. And follow us and check us out at All Day Vinyl on Instagram and YouTube.